0: Good evening everybody and welcome to Punch Kick Choke Chat. My name is Sean Benson, I'm one of your hosts and I'm so happy to be here tonight. I literally was just laughing so hard in our pre-chat that I, I exited the call. So if that happens again, uh, the great news is that there's four of us helping run this thing and, and that'll, that'll be just fine. Um, and uh, I just want to say, if you're watching us uh, on YouTube, we really appreciate it. Hit that subscribe button, hit the like button. If you're listening on one of the podcasts on any of the podcast platforms, that's awesome. But if you're watching on Zoom tonight, you get to be a live part of this show. And that means you get to ask questions of our guest uh, or of all of us. And then we'll make sure our guest is a part of the answering. Uh, and in a little bit, Andre's going to throw that button up for you. Uh, but every week it falls on me to introduce Sensei Niklaus Swin- Oh, he did it. It's at the bottom. So our Zoom guests, uh, we really appreciate you being here with us in real time. And uh, that's your ability to ask questions of our guests tonight, which is super awesome. Uh, It's the benefit you get by being here with us. Sensei Suino is uh, one of our hosts, and he was actually our first ever guest on the show, which is so phenomenal, over 60 episodes ago. So we're really taking a trip with this show, and we thank you all for taking it with us. Uh, I give the basic Palmaris of eighth Dan in Iaido, sixth Dan in Japanese Jiu-Jitsu, sixth Dan in Judo. And I was really thinking about your cuts, Sensei Suino, uh, because you were up here a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, we talked a lot about grappling and the, and the Jiu-Jitsu and that, that was fun for me, but it's still that Iaido watching you pull that sword and do those cuts. And I actually tried to teach class to my students last night, the way you talk about having been taught, which is I would do a kata, they would do a kata, I would do a kata they would do a kata and so I reminded myself about your style peerless direct transmission and it was really amazing watching my students grow last night in a way that felt special and different and I and part of it was that I was honoring you with the way I taught last night so how you doing tonight and thanks for giving me guidance in my lesson without maybe even knowing it last
1: night oh thanks Sean doing great and um as always I really appreciate your intro um it's so interesting that you mentioned that, you know, um, both uh, uh, Sensei Dauphin and Sensei Lariosa have been at my permissions event. And one of the stories I tell is how it was for me to st- study at the home of my Iaido teacher, Yamaguchi Sensei, um, this is the one time in my life more than any other time when I was, my cup was completely empty. I stepped in, in the most open-minded uh, uh, state that I've ever been in. And I don't know why, but he and I gelled. If he had said, you know, go play in traffic because <laughs> it'll make your idle better, I would have run out and gotten, and gotten hammered by the first car. Um, right. so there's something about coming to the table with that level of, you know, in a in a in a in a state in the right state that really helps you helps you learn. So i I was really blessed to have that opportunity. Thanks for Thanks bringing for it passing up. Passing it on to us. Yeah, and I, I love hearing that. Um, it was so cool to, to train with you guys not that very long ago, and I'm hoping we can reprise that soon. Uh, awesome, awesome experience. Uh, when we do the show, it falls on me to introduce Sensei Randy Dauphin. Most of our regular listeners know him very well. They know he's a seventh don in karate and a fourth don in iaido, um, multiple time uh, kata and kumite champion around the world, um, and just a great human being. And one of the things that I've really enjoyed over the last year or two is just watching how much he lives into this idea of thinking first about whether something is good for karate um, and then uh, whether it's good for the association and then whether it's good for the dojo and only finally, maybe even after thinking about his own students and the people around him he just thinks, thinks about himself. And he's walked that forward in a lot of things that we've done together and also with Hanchi Legacy. And of course, Sean, you know that as well uh uh i'm grateful for for our association randy uh how are you doing tonight
2: good Sensei. i have a question for you before we get started sure saw a very interesting picture and read some comments saw a picture of a suba and something about miller sensei miller and uh i'd like to know a little bit about that picture and then maybe people will go hunt that picture down and ask more questions about it. It what was happening there sensei
1: Well, if
2: you know, you know, and I know, but other people don't know. So
1: there, there there may be five or six people in the world that know. Um, So, so among our top EIDO players, we do something called bokken fencing. If you get very, very good at EIDO, we let you put on eye protection. And then we take bokken, uh, bokken, wooden swords, and we fence. Uh, The reason you have to be very, very good is when you screw up, it really hurts. Mm -hmm. Um, I've had a bokken in the back of. Uh, dan holland's eye socket i've had softball size (laughs) lumps on my head um uh, but we have a playful rule and that is once in a while on the on the bulk there's a tuba a plastic handguard, and once in a while in the midst of the battle it'll fly off well our rule is you can't go pick it up and put it on your own sword uh someone else in the room usually the person you're sparring with has to pick that up and throw it to you and you have to try to hold your bokken out and Mm. we for 20 years we 've been trying to have it so that the boat the the tuba flies just the right way lands on that boat and it goes in well uh, it's insane like there's some things in life that change your world right like you could live the whole life and that would never happen you always thought man that would be magic if it did happen well on Tuesday night it happened I was uh, doing some some work with Miller uh, the the tuba flew off and uh, he threw it on and it went right on the right on the volcano absolutely stunning astonishing one time in 20 years and i really don't expect it'll ever happen again so yeah thanks for asking that was that was freaking amazing we went nuts and um one of our students konomi is this lovely japanese woman who um is pretty new to that whole part of things and i'm sure she was just as confused as you could possibly be (laughs) (laughs) about what was going on in that moment
2: (laughs) that's awesome
1: thanks for for asking thank you Yeah,
2: thanks for sharing that i saw the picture. I knew that the tuba had been thrown and somehow it had ended up. I wasn't sure if it was on your your and or Miller's bookend, but uh, I appreciate the context now. And I hope people go hunt that picture down on the JMac Facebook profile or on your profile.
1: Sure.
2: Yeah. So I'm going to introduce Sensei Legacy, and then I'm going to introduce uh, Sensei Sam Lariosa. Sensei Legacy is the tenth dan. He was awarded up by his teacher Sensei Anthony Sandoval. Lots of talk about since Sandoval this weekend since legacy I and I were away and we chatted about Sensei Sandoval repeatedly. Um, and it was great to spread his, his knowledge and his legend. Uh, Sensei legacy is also a member of the Canadian black belt hall of fame. Again, we were in Ottawa this weekend mm. with like, I think seven or eight people from the Canadian black belt hall of fame. That was pretty cool as well. Uh, since legacy is an author. Other teachers who he's trained with have been Harold Warden, uh, Benny Allen, Richard Kim, and also Sensei Uh He's a student of Sensei And if you're wondering about the Ottawa thing, there's something coming out soon from Hunchy John Terry, and it's called uh, Ring Talk with Hunchy John Terry, and Hunchy Legacy was a guest on that. Um, and. I got to sit on the outside again, like that's kind of like this podcast. I got to sit in a chair off on the side while these two were talking in the ring with cameras on them. And interesting, if you want to hear some more good stories, you'll pay attention to that podcast when it comes out. I think it's starting next month in April and there's going to be one a month for 12 months. So, uh, and since Lacey is one of the guests, other guests are people like, you know, former world champion, Daryl Hannigan, um, former champion of the universe, uh, Jean-Yves Theriot, right? <laughs> people, people like that are, are, that's the ilk that, that are on that. So that's my introduction tonight for sense of legacy. Also to just say, um, I really enjoyed that alone time with sense of legacy on Friday, Saturday and Sunday. It's just super nice to be in the car alone, driving so many laughs. I mean, so many, we laughed so hard, so many times, nobody will ever know those laughs. And, uh, it was just fun to do a bunch of stuff with Sensei Legacy again together That alone and, and personal. So uh, that's, that's my intro for Sensei Legacy. Uh, and now I'm going to introduce uh, Sensei Sam Lariosa. Uh, I am a big respecter of higher education. And I want to point out first and foremost that uh, Sensei Lariosa is a graduate of the US Naval Academy, which is not something that everybody can claim. I don't think anybody we've talked to can claim that. Um, he started his martial arts training in 1992 and Morio Hagona's uh, Sensei's Karate Dojo in San Diego. Uh, since then, Sensei Lariosa uh, has earned his shodan in Okinawa in 1998. And he was awarded his sandan in Gojuru in Karate and in, uh, Hagashiona Sensei's Dojo in 2005. And I'm not going to make the same mistake I made last time. I, I'm making an assumption that Sensei Lariosa is higher ranking than that, but as all good karate you can't find his highest rank anywhere. He just doesn't advertise it or promote it. So um, maybe, Sean, you can just write that down as a question uh, for, <laughs> for the conversation. Um, so Sensei La has traveled and trained and studied in a wide range of martial arts, um, not only karate, but also Chinese wushu, Shotokan uh, karate, He's trained in Taekwondo. He's done Krav Magra. Um, and also we were talking about it before. He's actually also done Okinawan Shorin Sharanuru which is the style that Sensei Legacy and I do and, and Sensei Benson. Uh, he's the owner and chief instructor at Ohana Karate. He opened that dojo in Michigan and called it Ohana Karate in 2003. And he has now the largest, most successful martial arts school in Livingston County with over 325 students. Um, I met, uh, sensei at permissions and I could tell you the first introduction was great. Like he's a very warm, open person, really willing to engage and chat with you. Uh, it's really clear that he's open and friendly and extremely intelligent. Uh, I went snooping around and I looked on his website. and one thing that he said that on the website, when you're sifting through things, is that uh, parents ask you to help raise their children. And I think as martial arts teachers, that's a really cool thing to read from a sensei, like because you are actually helping raise those kids. You're, and it made me think of when I got married. Um, my stepfather stood up and asked sensei Le- and congratulated sensei legacy and thanked him for helping to raise me. And it, it made me think of that when I read that, um, but you know some of the uh, core principles that uh, Sensilariosa tries to help kids with are poor grades, getting ready for kindergarten, i.e. an uncomfortable situation when you're young. So uh, shyness, lack of control, that would be me. You would have been helping me with that um, <laughs> bullying, um, and bullying, right? So. Uh, and one thing, I guess a final thing, Sean, before I, well, I'm going to send it over to you know, but a final thing I want to say is, uh, when I started snooping around his Facebook profile, something stood out to me as I was looking at his Facebook profile. And it made me remember when I saw him first, he always smiles when you see him, he smiles at you. And when you look at the pictures on his Facebook profile, he's always smiling. And not only is he always smiling, all the people around him are always smiling. And while Facebook is not a real thing, it's often superficial, I don't believe so in this case. I believe that when people are around Sensei Lariosa, they feel better about themselves and they feel happy, and his smile is genuine, and it's infectious, and other people smile too because of him, and that's a great thing. So welcome tonight, Sensei Lariosa, and I'm going to just punch it over to Sensei Suino for a minute.
1: Uh, If I was going to add anything to that, and I hope we talk a lot about Sensei's martial arts training. uh, But I suspect something else will creep into there. Um, We met some time ago through a mutual acquaintance, Dan Vigil, who was a a Taekwondo instructor in this area. Um, And we started a kind of a mentorship group uh, or or, uh, um, uh, what what do you call that? A mastermind group. Um, And I think I have learned as much or more about the business of martial arts and helping people grow from Sensei Larios as anybody. And that may surprise him to hear, but you know, every year or so we connect, we talk a little bit. I visited his dojo, he's visited mine. And I have uh, a, a hefty handful of of uh, things, advice, Sensei, that you've given me or quotes that you've said that help inspire me. And I think they've really made JMAC a much better place. So I hope some of that creeps into it. And I suspect it's very hard to talk to Sensei Larios about martial arts and not have that stuff creep in so i'm just hoping that that does in fact creep in and if it doesn't you i you can be sure i'll be wedging my way into the conversation <laughs> uh that we
0: look forward to that Sensei we know you know I, I wedge away um uh i'm just gonna do a quick bit of housekeeping sensei lariosa uh so first and foremost we are sponsored by world martial arts live which is uh, coming back for the second online festival uh festival uh, that's what I call it. Uh June 18th. And I'm gonna throw that to Sensei Dauphin. Um so they're sponsoring us tonight, but also uh we have a seminar coming up that I know you might want to mention as well. Sensei, do you wanna chip in about either of those things?
2: Yeah, it's uh it's pretty cool. Like when you I'm pretty happy about that. So Sensei Suino and I and Sensei Legacy, I've talked to them in the past about, you know, what are the goals and actually like Uh, Sensei Lariosa and I were talking about this before because it was at permissions uh, about three or four years ago that I was very intentional with him about some of the goals that I had in martial arts when it came to, I want to have a professional dojo, I want to have instructors here who can lead classes, those things have, have all happened, but one of the things that I had said was I wanted to start working on bigger events that helped to keep the community of martial arts together, bring instructors together, get people together. And one of the things we did during the pandemic was World Martial Arts Live. We mm. did that with Hunchy John Terryan and World Kabuto and JMAC and Legacy Sharanuru. And it was huge. We had uh, 96, 94 instructors over 24 hours and yeah, uh, four instructors an hour for 24 hours and we're gonna do it again. And one of the things that's been pretty cool about that is that most of the people who did it the last time, as soon as we said, we want to do it again, they just instantly were like, let's do it. They were like the instructors, all the people were, and I I said it last time and I'll say it again, it's pretty cool experience. You know, a, a kid in Mexico might not have an opportunity to train with a Japanese sword master, but they can on world martial arts Live, Right. You can, for us, we've had guests on this show that we met on World, like our last guest, Mike Wall, Sensei Mike Wall, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I trained with that guy on World Martial Arts Live, and I was like, this guy's a total badass, and I'm super excited that we're going to be doing it again. 14th, 15th, here in Kitchener at the University of Waterloo, uh, Legacy Shore en Root and World Kabuto are putting on, we got like a top-notch list of instructors right now. That's right away. As soon as the instructors were agreeing to come and teach, I was like, this is pretty cool. So we got Sensei Swino's coming, Sensei Legacy's coming, Hanchi uh, Terrians coming, Hanchi uh, Saiz flying in from Belgium to instruct. Everybody's favorite karate person, Sensei Copeland's coming up to teach. Uh, ben Ledesur, world kickboxing champion, heavyweight world kickboxing champion, he's coming to teach. Mike and Laura Civic, total badass, uh, Kabuto people. Uh, Scott Baron, ninth degree black belt, uh, James Freeze, Adet, Rice—they're all coming. It's—we're gonna probably have somewhere around 200 people on the floor, uh, five mats going every hour, four hours a day for two days, and it's gonna be crazy good, and I can't wait.
0: Fantastic. And then the last thing I do want to say before we jump right in is, you know, you're watching this, you're watching five adults have a conversation. If you don't like any of the language, if you don't like any of the tone or the tenor or the points of view, look for the similarities, not the differences. We're all in this together. And if you leave an hour and a half chat with uh, with a bunch of karate folks on it and you don't get some idea that you enjoy or thinking about um, I'd be shocked, I'd be shocked. I'm just gonna leave it at that. Sensei Lariosa, how are you tonight? What's going on?
3: I'm doing wonderful, I'm delighted to be here. You know, I, that uh, introduction, I gotta honestly say, kind of touched me because it, it, was, it was probably one of the best introductions I, I've had, I think ever, because I, I can't believe how um, it, was, it was from the heart from both mm-hmm. uh, Suino Sensei and Dolphin Sensei. But again, I'm honored and I'm actually humbled to be here because I saw the list of uh, the guests you've had in the past, I'm like, wow.
0: Well, we're happy you're with us tonight. It's really great to be able to do this with you. And uh, let's just jump right into our, our Kickstarter, which is, what was it like for you growing up where you were? Tell us a bit about that. What led you to your first dojo and what kept you there?
3: Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll tell the story. I, you know, one of the things, maybe the reason I smile so much is... Um, Sometimes I got to pinch myself when I look back, you know, how lucky I was. Um, Growing up, uh, I was, was was, I had a really interesting uh, childhood. Um, My parents were immigrants from the Philippines. And so I was first generation Filipino American. And uh, what's interesting is, and my father was in the military. So my life was very similar to a lot of people. There were one first generation, uh, you know, first generation Americans and also a military child. So when I both my parents came over from the Philippines. They didn't know each other uh, and they met here in the United States. And my father got in through the Navy and my mom uh, was a registered nurse. She came in through a program that was bringing in Filipino nurses. Um, They met and then of course, I was born actually in in Boston, Massachusetts. And uh, what's pretty typical of military uh, families is we moved every two years. So I was born in Boston, and then from there, I proceeded every two years we moved. It was crazy. And we'd always go East Coast, West Coast. So we, I went from Boston, and I think we went to uh, Long Beach next, then Norfolk, Virginia, and then um, uh, Alameda, California, then uh, Newport, Rhode Island. And for, so for the first 12 years of my life, we were back and forth between the, uh, the different coasts. Yeah. Um, and it was interesting, because later on, I asked my parents, I go, why did we do that? And uh, come to find out the way it works in the military, the farther you move, the bigger your moving allowance. So we would all we wouldn't just move from from Virginia to Rhode Island. We'd have to go from Virginia all the way to California. Um, that was wild back then because um, now the school systems, systems are fairly standardized. When it, back then the, it, was, it would have been in the 70s, wow. the schools are very different. Like California was going, you know, high tech, high tech. And I remember it really affected me school-wise because I'd go from basically almost a red brick schoolhouse in Rhode Island, you go to California where they were way ahead. And I know where it really messed me up was in cursive writing. Remember, remember learning cursive writing? I was, I was in a school in Rhode Island where we hadn't learned it yet. And all of a sudden I moved to California and all of a sudden they've already, already done cursive. But anyways, um, that's kind of what I went through. Uh, it's interesting being an immigrant, a first generation, and I know a lot of people will be able to identify with this who are. When you're a first generation American, your parents are trying to turn you white. In other words, they're trying to do away with all the things, because what they want to do is they want to become Americanized as quick as possible because they mm-hmm. want to circulate into society. So I think a first generation Americans all share this where all of a sudden you lose your identity. Um, you're like, wait, I'm brown, I'm Filipino, but you know we don't we don't speak the language you know where they try not to let us eat the food so the whole time you're being turned white and you'll see how this fits in later with the martial arts um so anyway that that's kind of a dilemma because you go through life kind of with a dual identity you're like you know you're trying to be american and white but then you're like wait a minute it's i can't live a lie right. um so anyways i uh, going through that i was really lucky because um in high school for my high school years my parents decided to, to uh, take a, a duty station in the Philippines. And I, had, I have a brother and sister. And at the time um, we were just crying. We we're like, oh no, we don't want to go to the Philippines. You know, we thought, you know, no running water, we'd be wiping our butts with banana leaves. You know, <laughs> 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 we, 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 we thought, you know, oh my, you know, you know, we're getting, mom and dad, what are you doing? You're bringing us from the United States. We're going to go to the Philippines. And we were, we were kicking and scratching. We were crying, we didn't want to go. But lo and behold, it's one of the best things that ever happened because mm. um, I was there. We went First, I lived on, uh, if you're familiar with the military bases in the Philippines, I lived on Subic Naval Base uh, for, for the first two years. And the, the last two years, which would have been my you know, uh, sophomore, junior, uh, senior uh, year in, in high school, I was at Clark Air Force Base. This was back in 1972 to 77. If you remember what was happening right then, that was, the, that was towards the end of the Vietnam War. And if you look at a map of the Philippines and, and Vietnam, they're friggin' right across the ocean from each other. So those bases were just, we used to say it was like the Wild West. Wow. You, had, you, had, you had all these soldiers, airmen coming in, going out of Vietnam. And these guys would go into Vietnam and go, they, they, would, they could die the next day. So you can imagine the mentality of that of the, of the, of the base. You had these guys filtering in and out. And I remember, I, the, the good thing for me, I was just a little bit too young to be drafted. Because, uh, you know, I, I didn't turn 18 until like 1977. So, mm. so without actually going to the war, into Vietnam, I was about as close as you can get without actually being there. So anyways, I grew up there in the Philippines. And it, it was the best of time. It was one of the best things I ever did because it was a blast. Because living mm. on a military base, and, you, you know, you, like, you look at Okinawa and, and, and uh, Japan. When you live on those American islands, and that's what they really are, they're, just, they're you know. They've got everything. They've got it. They have a dairy. They have their own dairy. They they produce all their own, you know, everything. So it's like living on an island, and um, I loved it. And the schools are great. And uh, so, anyways, um, I did really well in school. That was probably one of the gifts I had. I was just really good at math, and um, I really didn't know what I wanted to do in life. I thought I was pretty immature when I was growing up, but my math grades were pretty good. I did really good on the SAT, ACT, and then lo and behold. Um, everybody who was there because we were all military, everybody applied for the, for the, for the military academies if they had good grades.
0: And sir, so, let me just ask real quick, um, wh- just cause as we're getting to a bit later, are you developing or being given from your parents a martial mindset or are you just kind of bopping around doing your thing and that's for them? Is that something yeah. you're thinking about at that age?
3: Yeah. You know, graduating you high part, school. Like, 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 like you know martial arts.
0: Even if not martial arts, like, you know, military mindset, are you thinking, oh. is that inherent in how you're living? Or are you just kind yeah, of bopping was, around as a teenager having a good time and your parents no, are taking you for me to be? You
3: know, it's, it's funny when you grow up as a military kid, um, one of two things either happen, either you love the military or you hate it. Right. It's like one or the other. But the thing about it, you don't realize it. And I, I think you don't really, when you're a kid, you don't realize it, that it's abnormal. It's an abnormal life. You think, every you know, you think everybody lives like you, but you know, when you live in the military, you know, especially you're around bases and why not, you know, everybody around you is military. Like, like I remember what was really cool was in the high school I went, we never had any bad kids. And the reason why is if you're in a military base in a DOD school and you're a kid who's like a bad kid, you know what happens? The principal just calls a commanding officer of your dad's unit and basically says, you got to go ship ships. You got to ship back to stateside. So yeah, that's what they would do. So there were never any really discipline, but that's just how different it was on a military right. base. But as far as, um, you know, I, I think when you grow up in a military base, whether you like the military or not, you want to, you just, it's just a part of your DNA that you just can't get rid of. Mm-hmm. You know, you just, yeah. you know, I mean, military people think differently. You know, everything's on time. Everything's very, you lived a very disciplined life. Like you ever meet a, a kid who's, whose parent was like a Marine Corps in the Marine Corps? They're different, but they have something
0: in common. Right on. So, Thanks for that. Yeah, that's really interesting to me. Yeah.
3: So but, So. anyways, um, so I, I, got, I got selected for the Naval Academy and I got to honestly say, it's probably, I mean, I had to pinch myself. It's probably one of the most significant things in my life that changed my life forever. I didn't know much about it. When I got over there, boy, was it an eye opener. I knew about the military, but as you can imagine, unlike most of the military, our boot camp was basically a whole year. Um, You know, most boot camps are what, you know, four four weeks, six weeks, but for the Naval Academy, and the other thing about the Naval Academy, too, I'm kind of rambling on here, but it's very steeped in tradition. And you'll see how that relates because I, I don't know, I just love tradition, 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 because you know, while the world is changing and innovating, innovating, I think what happens is traditional, traditional organizations or traditional cultures kind of keep our feet grounded. Mm. And that without that, we're flying in 50 million directions and we lose the value of, I don't know, the relationships you have with people and, 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 you know, who you're with. Um, But anyways, so I, I get over there and uh, here's the, here's, here's the real eye opener is, you know, you you go to pretty good high school and you're like in the top, you know, 10%, 5%. And you go to a college where all of a sudden everybody is top 10%. And all of a sudden you think, oh, I was, you know, I was pretty good. But now I'm like bottom of the barrel. (laughs) So, and I was around, oh, and I was around some amazing people. Uh, Some of these guys were just natural leaders from the start. Some are older. The other thing that was interesting while I was at Naval Academy too, is it was right, I entered in 1977. Uh, the Vietnam War ended in '75. Well, after the Vietnam War, uh, we had a bunch of POWs that came back. Well, wow. they were still active duty, so when they got their treatment after being, uh, you know, held captive, the Navy didn't quite know what to do with them because they were thinking, "Are these guys stable enough to, you know, go back to combat?" Whatever. So you know what they did? They they put them temporary duty at the Naval Academy. So while I was there, guys like John McCain, like, uh, you know, John, um, you know Lawrence, uh, you know, some of the POWs who were just amazing were there. And I remember they would be there and they would tell us the stories of leadership. And wow. can, you, can you imagine, you know, here's, here's, here's what's interesting. You're, you're flying off an aircraft carrier. You just had a stake. You just were just watching a movie. You get shot down and all of a sudden, next thing you know, these people that are trying to kill you and then they throw you in a prisoner war camp and you're being tortured. <laughs> for years yeah but you go you, here's what's interesting you go from you go from in your flight suit on an aircraft carrier to all of a sudden you're shot down and now you're a captive and you're being tortured and those guys had the lead under those and the reason why it was incredible is because you know you study leadership at the naval academy talk about the the most what he caught trying way to lead they didn't have to lead okay they're being tortured a matter of fact the vietnamese they would try to knock down anybody who was a leader if you tried right. to be a leader they'd knock you down they'd torture you extra they uh... so these guys under these conditions where they were being starved or they were being tortured but what they did was to a man they all stepped up and said you know i'm going to lead even even though i'm in this prisoner of war camp so it was they kind of gave us that inspiration of, you know, how do you lead, wow. how do you lead in a situation like that? And, and every one of them came back. If you, it's interesting. If you talk to any one of them, they were, you would say, we'd ask them, you know, if you could do it over again, you know, do you, do you wish you hadn't gone to the prison war do you, you, do you wish you hadn't been a prison war And every one of them said to a T, no, because it made me a better person. Wow. Even though they were tortured. And, and, and the stuff they had to go through was just, you know, unimaginable. So
0: anyways, I was just going to say, before you hit the martial arts world, you're being prepared for the type of things through the military aspect, through the leadership's aspect. It makes, it's no surprise that you flourished once you entered that world.
3: Yeah. And you know, you know what, you know what what I really, really find to say is that um, the more and more I do the martial arts, the more I find so much in common with the military in so many different ways. And really, if you think about it, especially American martial arts, American martial arts and the military are intertwined. Mm. Because yep. of, you know, because of the because of the soldiers and sailors and airmen that were stationed in uh, Korea and Japan and Okinawa. So Jocko
2: event- Willing, Willing says that all the time, that outside of the military, the only people he can associate with are martial artists. <laughs> but that's it. That's the <laughs> only place he can find any commonality is with martial artists.
3: You know, you know what I tell people all the time, especially adults that join us, if I know they're military, all I have to do is say this. I go, remember when you were in a combat unit? I go, the same. you get the same feelings in a karate, good karate dojo. And they instantly go, ah. And then when they feel it, they go. And that's why military people sometimes love a dojo because it feels just like they're in a military unit again, that camaraderie. You know, it's it's that, you know what they say is, you know, when you're in the military, especially in combat, you don't fight for the flag, you don't fight for your country, you know what you do, you fight for the guy next to you. Mm. And, um, you know, there's something special about that, when you know the guy next to you, and you, you can feel this in a dojo, when the guy next to you, you know that they would do anything for you they could, and you trust them, you trust them, you know, just hundred you percent you ever get that feeling in a dojo sometimes when
2: you, especially when you get get close to somebody and yeah so, yeah who can know who can know what it's like to get punched in the face super hard <laughs> or knocked unconscious <laughs> than somebody else who has been punched in the face and knocked unconscious <laughs> That's right. um,
0: so sensei then what led you to finally go i'm going to walk into a dojo i'm going to i'm going to put this into something martial arts for myself
3: sure yeah this is funny i i always say um the uh the martial arts guys have always been good for me. Um, it was interesting. One one note is when I was in the Philippines, um, Bruce Lee was huge. I mean, everybody was Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee, everybody was Bruce Lee Gaga. I never realized when I was in the Philippines because Bruce Lee was so big that the Philippine, Filipinos had a huge tradition in Scrima and Cali. I never knew because when I was there, everybody was, you know, so enamored by Bruce Lee. So needless to say, although I was Asian um, I really didn't know much about the martial arts. I kind of had a passing interest. Oh yeah, that's cool. That's cool. But it wasn't like I was early on going, oh, I'm studying everything and, you know, buying books and buying videos. The way I got into the martial arts was really kind of interesting. It, I, it wasn't until, uh, I was like 31. I was 10 years out of, out of, out of the Naval Academy. And what I was doing was I was transitioning from the military to civilian life. I, I got out of the Navy and I, I really wanted to, you know, get into a, in the business world. So it was one of those things where um, I was starting a new career. I had a family. And one of those things where I, because of time and stress, I I wasn't working out. I was always used to being on team sports. And you know how you just get to a point where you're like, okay, I just don't feel good physically. So at that point, I said, okay, I need to do something. And And it's interesting because a lot of people look at me as a very disciplined person. But I always say, I need somebody yelling at me. (laughs) <laughs> I need somebody yelling at I mean don't you think that's true you need somebody yelling at you so it was interesting I was living in San Diego and so I go okay and I, I want I to do the martial arts so in San Diego um, you go into the yellow pages and there's like two freaking pages of martial arts studios I mean crazy I mean when you so different than out here out here mm-hmm. you've got you know six So anyways, so it was funny because I didn't know, I didn't know anything about martial arts at all. So I just go through and I just start visiting places and a lot of places I X'd off and it's kind of funny, you know how sometimes you walk into a dojo and right away you walk right out. (laughs) You just know by the way it feels, a number of them were like that. And of course, I I went through a ton of dojos. Some of them were, you know, very commercial where all of a sudden you felt like you're in a timeshare, um, you know, timeshare selling thing. And um, so one of the dojos I stopped at was Higona dojo, but I didn't know who he was. And what was really, what was really funny in a stroke of luck, when I went there, it was actually closed because every year they have a huge, um, what do you call it, um, festival slash tournament. And they just so happened to be at that tournament at that time. And it was really funny because I look in the dojo, it's nothing spectacular. It's dark. And I was almost ready to wipe it off my list because there's so many to go. But then something made me come back, so I come back to that dojo, and I didn't know who Mori was, yeah. but I knew something was different about his dojo. I just, you know, I just felt it. So what was funny was when I was there, uh, Tetsuchi Nakamura, who's now the um, the chief instructor for the IOGKF, he's really the he took over for Mori Higona, He was actually his assistant at the time. So when I walk in the door, you know, me knowing nothing, he did my introductory lesson. And then that's how I started there. And it was really funny because for the longest time, I really didn't even appreciate who he was. Yeah. I remember when I was there, we'd be like, I'm I, uh, my fellow white and yellow belts. We'd be in the, in the dressing room and we get people who would come in from all over the world. So we're sitting there in the dressing room. And these two Russian guys are talking to us, They're, you know, black belts from Russia. And they go, you know, you guys don't know how lucky you are to be training here with Morio sensei. And me and the other white belt look at each other like, you mean that small Asian guy out there? <laughs> was, you know, it was literally like that. And it wasn't until after I I left his dojo that I really started to understand, you know, who he was. But anyways, I was really lucky because really the, my first day in the martial arts was in a class with uh, Morio yeah. Higona sensei.
2: Yeah. Just like us, people say, you know, white privilege, you had karate privilege. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right from day one, you had karate privilege. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and it's interesting because I
3: didn't realize it or appreciate it right mm-hmm. away. And, but I know, and of course his classes were tremendous and he's a phenomenal teacher. And the other thing too, is what was really good is we had so many good black belts and as a yellow, white belt, you know, orange belt the best thing was training with those guys because mm. the worst thing is sparring with a yellow belt <laughs> a yellow belt sparring is a yellow belt cuz someone's going to get hurt okay <laughs> but when, but those black belts were so good to us because they had such good control they'd scare the crap out of us but uh, but they had such good control and you know we, we did a lot of sparring and we always i always loved sparring the black belts cuz they'd come so hard at us but we knew that we were safe with them but they'd scare the crap out of us <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, uh, you know, t- talk about how long you trained there, but also, um, what was it? You know, y- you came to find out what those Russian gentlemen were talking about. Um, so talk a little bit about what those classes were like. What did make them special? What made him special? You know, if you don't mind spending a, a moment on that.
3: Sure. Yeah. He, uh, you know, to me, he's a very spe- special person. I I always like to say he's the reason why he did so well in the in the karate world. I think he's a freak of nature, <laughs> and I think anybody who's a genius. Uh, is here's here's the one unusual thing about him he friggin loved training he could train for six to eight hours a day I mean he, he wouldn't just train you know two hours every day every day he would go six six to eight hours he was I think he was one of those kids when he was growing up you know it was the typical where you know he had problems in school his mom was always you know getting on him because they couldn't control him you know lots of energy but he was just a perfect I, he was just the perfect person to develop into a great karate, you know, karate master for sake of a better word. But that was him. And you should see, it, you'll, you'll love this, Sweet you know, Sensei. His body conditioning was friggin' unreal. He didn't punch Makiwaras, you know, why? Because he would break them. You know what he would do? He'd punch, he'd punch concrete pillars and he'd hit rocks. And then, you know, when you see his arms, you're like, holy cow. I remember one time, he demonstrated something on me, and I, he caught me by surprise. I remember he, his his forearm came across the back of my neck, and it literally felt like a telephone pole with a little bit of leather on it. it was you know the the uh, mukhi heavy, sticky. He has that developed so well. It's amazing how much power he has in his body. But again, watching him condition his body is just it's it, it's 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 not even human. You know, I don't know if you've seen any uh, videos of him. Yep. Um, and, and the training was lots of basics, lots of basics, tons of basics. Um, we, did a lot, we did a lot of sparring. And, uh, you know, it, the, the, the coolest thing, the training was always very physical. I remember one of the, one of the things I'll always remember is there in his dojo, whenever we train, you know, they got the windows in the front. And every time we trained, it would just get completely fogged up. <laughs> and get fogged up to the point where it condensed and there'd be drips of sweat coming down the uh, the, win- the, the windows. And I always thought that was the coolest sight. You're <laughs> we like, okay, it was a good one today.
0: Love that. And what was the tenor of the, the sparring? What was the, were you guys padded? Were you not padded? Was it pretty hard? Was it pretty, uh, you know? It was, how about-
3: it, yeah, it was, it was pretty hard. In, in, uh, in goju or in his dojo at least, they didn't do any point sparring. It was all irokumi continuous sparring. And um, usually we wore, you know, wore protections on our hands, but it, the hitting was pretty hard, especially when when they got up to black belt. I mean, they. I don't know if you watch like Kyoshin Kai fighting, it was continuous. And it's funny because um, there wasn't a whole lot of defense. It was all lots of offense. It was like pounding and lots of really hard leg kicks. So that's what the, that's what the sparring was like. And and the black belts were really good because um, I, I remember there was this one really cool black belt, that really really like. He, he would tell us. He'd tell me. He goes okay, I'm going to only hit you in one spot, which is in the middle of your chest. He goes, I'm going to spar you, but I'm going to only hit you in one spot. And so we'd be sparring and you'd be trying to, you, you know, you'd be trying to protect yourself. You'd be trying to hit him and every time, boom, hit you in the middle of the chest. <laughs> You're like, damn. <laughs> so, but um, the, the the other thing that was interesting about Higgins Sensei was his, his his English was very bad. <laughs> and the more he got away from speaking English, the worse it got. So, the interesting thing about him is he didn't really explain much. It was just like train, 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 train. As a matter of fact, um, his his motto was listen, um, listen, sweat, and I don't hit. Basically, it was there wasn't a whole lot of explanation. I think you know if you think of, if you I think when you look a lot at it, the way that the Japanese and the Okinawans especially teach karate, there's very little there's very little explanation, and and you almost taught the culture of the dojo is almost like you don't ask.
0: Mm.
3: And it's just, you will learn because when you do it 10,000 times, you will learn it. So, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah.
0: Well, I actually I'm- wouldn't mind you, uh, using that as a chance to crack this open and go around the horn a little bit. So, you know, uh, I'll go Sensei Suino and then Sensei Legacy and then Sensei Dauphin. But um, we talked about, and then back to you, Sensei, we talked about this in the, in the opening when I introduced Sensei Suino is the idea of, you know, the direct, the peerless transmission without talking as much and just, I'm going to do it, you're going to do it, I'm going to do it, you're going to do it. So Sensei Suino, how much talking do you need to do versus just show, do it, show, do it?
1: It's a great question. Uh, I certainly teach with my voice a lot more than my teachers in Japan did for me. Um, And didn't we have a guest on here recently, right? The outcome of the whole conversation was shut up and train. (laughs) <laughs> um I think it's certainly possible to do both but um I know I probably err more on the side of explaining than I used to do but at the end of the day I don't think martial arts is a is something that's uh it's not verbal it's physical.
4: Auntie like Legacy? Well I agree that in order to get better and to progress you must train more than standing around talking. But uh there is there's a the thing about About what Fanakoshi said 75% of your martial arts as a student is your sensei giving you the information, and 25% of it is you putting it into practice. Because there's a lot in martial arts. If you just concentrate on just doing one or two things, you you may be good uh, on a very narrow stretch, but you you need to learn more all the time. And it, it has to be, you have to have a sensei in order to learn that full spectrum of martial arts. But actually getting down and doing it is what makes you better. I, I agree with that. I, I love talking about this. Uh, sensei fan.
2: I think, like if I think of my relationship with Sensei Suino or Sensei Legacy, I think initially, There was a lot of explanation and a lot of talking. The last time I went and trained with Sensei Suino and it was Sensei Suino and uh, Sensei Miller and Sensei Holland. Just the four of us were just on the floor. There was zero talking, like literally zero talking other than announcing the cut and then doing the cut. So that I think is the direct transmission part. You know, I trained White Crane with Sensei Legacy last Tuesday, very little talking other than we're going to do this kata next and then you just kind of do it right mm-hmm. so but I, that wasn't the way it was when i started karate everything was explained to like you know and I, not only was it explained i was able to question which i think is one of the things right like i think if we're talking about sensei la rioza because sensei Hagona's english was so bad you probably can't even ask questions so right. you're not even in the opera you don't even have the opportunity to put your hand up and say i have a question you're just <clears> like I just got to be quiet and figure this out, right? So, so, but I think generally speaking, in the beginning, there's more talk and then there's less talk. But the one thing I want to say about the direct transmission piece is, your relationship needs to evolve. I've learned as many things off of the dojo floor from Sensei Srinu and Sensei Legacy as I did on the floor. And the whole impetus of this show is because I used to sit in the back seat of a car quietly and just listen to sense of legacy talk to somebody else right um and and so i guess that's what i i feel about direct transmission direct transmission is the things that you learn that weren't intended to be taught to you but you learn them anyway because of the space and time that you were in and you need to spend a lot of space and time with those teachers for you to learn those things on a uh, (laughs) through osmosis right like resting your head on the textbook every night and just sleeping with your head on the Mm -hmm. textbook and then all of a sudden you know physics
0: (laughs) i uh, i love what you just reminded uh, me of is the idea of that back seat because listening whether it's physically whether it's physically while moving with my sensei or whether it's literally just listening to the words is very different than Mm -hmm. what i call a conversation and listening making up the bulk of it feels right to me, even if it's listening to an explanation. Sensi Lariosa, do you want to put a button on that? Or do you want to, you want to chat with about that topic at all?
3: Yeah. You know, you know, I was, I was thinking as I was in in terms of when I teach too, I, I, you know, what we, what we have is a Philip is, is mainly a physical skill. There's a little bit more involved, but there's mainly physical skill. And what I find is I the word feel um, in other words, what, what we do a lot of times, I think we, it's, you need to know what it feels like. So for instance, when I'm explaining something to somebody, I almost want to cut to the chase and not explain and go, here's what the technique feels like, or here's what the movement feels like, you know. And um, so I think a lot of times when you, you can't describe, you can't talk about a technique that they're going to apply, you almost have to kind of show them, let them feel it. You know what I mean? More, mm-hmm. more, 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 more teach you feel like. What do you call? It? You know, your move, but your moochimi, You know, if you try to describe those in words, you can spend hours trying to describe it. You'll never get it.
2: Yeah, more, I love that sense of that. That's uh, Sense Legacy says all the time, karate's a feeling. Yep. All the time, he says karate's a feeling, and I when I think of somebody and I watch a student and I'm like, they're not doing it right often it's not a technical thing. I watch them and I think, I don't think they feel the same way that I feel when they're doing that stuff and they need to develop that feeling.
0: Love that. And also, you know, 25 years ago, one of the guys on this call, Sensei Nick McLaren, the first person to make this arm go dead. And the person at the bottom of my screen, Sensei Suino is the last person to make this arm go dead. And it was, we need to feel this. We need to make sure this works. And there was no conversation while we were deadening one another's arms. There was just finding the nerve or not finding the nerve. Um, Sensei, I just want to jump left for a second, go to a question, and then I'm going to throw it back to Sensei Suino to nudge us back in the directions he wants to make sure we don't miss. But uh, Robert Schlumsky, who's one of our PKCC, uh, he's one of our guys, and he's not with us uh, hosting tonight, but he's online. And he has a question for you. Uh, Can you talk about being a plant-powered sensei and the connection between diet and martial arts—he's taken that from your Instagram <laughs> handle. Um,
3: that's more my wife. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thanks for catching that. You know, I got, I, I got, I got to give credit to my wife because she's always a great, you know, promoter or whatever. But that's that's really from her. What What it was is my. It, it's funny because my wife is wonderful, and a lot of people when they meet her, they think, and it's funny because she'll go to like doctor appointment, whatever. She goes are you a medical professional? Because she's one of these people that she's not a medical professional, but her hobby is like researching stuff on the internet, Mm -hmm. right? And there's so much there. But anyway, she really is huge on nutrition and health. As a matter of fact, she runs a great program. We actually have what's called a Rock Steady program. During the day, uh, people with Parkinson's, I don't know if you're familiar with that, um, they found out that a non-contact boxing program can actually either can either uh, slow down or stop the progression of Parkinson's disease. Um, there's no cure for it. So anyways, she's always been this type of person who's really big on, okay, if everybody always goes to her for medical advice and I'm like, you gotta be careful, you're not a doctor. So anyway, she got really big on, on um, nutrition and about a plant-based diet. And I think a lot's been published on that. So she kind of got me going on that, lost a ton of weight. But it was really her that kind of got that publicity for plant-based sense. She goes, "He goes, this will be a neat name." Watch So that was all her doing. But I, okay. but, I but I had, a, I had a great time doing it, and it really, you know, I, I know you, you can probably, everybody can probably appreciate this. But as you get older, all of a sudden, all these things about what you eat, how you exercise, how you had. When we were young, you could do anything, right? You mm-hmm. could eat any crap you want. You could, you could kill yourself, you know. But now, because I'm, I'm, I'm going to turn sixty-three this year. A lot of people don't believe it but all of a sudden i'm like holy cow you know you start to you start to appreciate that everything little thing you do to your body really makes a difference and i really notice i'm really affected by what i eat you know you know the big thing on inflammation that certain certain foods certain things and i don't know as i've gotten older so that's kind of like the the direction that i went with she kind of helped me a little bit and go hey let's, let's let's eat a little bit better we want a little bit longer so we get a chance to see our
0: grandkids and are, are you finding the benefits? Are you, are, are, are you going, wow, this is really working. Like, this is this is me now.
3: Yep. Yep. And it was really funny because here's, here's this really weird. Uh, Filipinos. I love Filipinos. Filipinos have never met a pig they didn't like. They're <laughs> like <laughs> big pork eaters. I mean, you, the Filipino <laughs> diet is bad. It's a high in salt, high in fat. You know, I don't know how Filipinos live as long as they mm-hmm. do. So, when we first went on, I'm like, no, I, I, you know, I mean, I was eating meat every finger meal. I mean, you're talking about, you know, 22 on steaks huh. and I'm going, man, I don't know if I can do this, but I went on it felt the best I ever had. And he was really, he was, was really threw me off after I'd been on it a while. um, I ate some meat and I almost, I almost felt nauseous. And I'm like, what happened? I go, I could eat like a half a cow, <laughs> you know? but it was really weird. That I was really shocked. and like, and especially like for some reason, poultry now, I, I'm just, I can't eat, I can't eat poultry. It's like, it just,
2: it just turns my stomach. So, isn't that kind of interesting? Yeah. The moral thinking. I'm taking away from this is don't stop eating meat. Yeah.
3: you love this. I, I, you know, there's a, there's a place called Restaurant Depot. It's down there by Ann Arbor. And I'll go down there because they'll sell a side of pork belly with skin on like a 20, like a 30 pound piece, I'll go down there. And it's like, you know, the the worst thing for you. But uh, that's how much of a carnivore I was. Uh, But it it really, it really has made a difference. You know, what amazing,
0: amazing, you know, even gut health alone. I mean, you know, if I got a sore knee, I can do most things. But if I have my guts off, everything sucks, like everything sucks, everything sucks. And, uh, you know, I'm probably the youngest guy in the call as I hit my 40s. Like, my gut just went, Nope, you need to fully rejig. I, I still eat the meat, but I, I think it's something really important. And, and Robert, I don't have your answers and no one on the call does, but for everybody listening, hunting down the diet that works best for you. And you might need to reevaluate in five years is as important as how many kicks you throw tonight, I believe.
2: Cause you can't throw your kids you uh, off. You're going to say hunting down the meat you eat. <laughs>
0: hunting down <laughs> That too. <laughs> well, on that note, Sensei Suino, why don't you nudge us back in, uh, into another direction with Sensei Lariosa?
1: Well, um, he's sort of already done it. He mentioned his Rocksteady uh, boxing program. Um, one of the cool things, I don't know how long we've known each other. I've got to feel like it's 20 years now. It, um, And early on, when I first started JMAC, um, I I went up to Sensei Lario's dojo a couple of times and watched how he taught. But what's really interesting is every time I go up there, I'll go up there with very specific questions in mind. You know, how do you teach this in karate? Or, you know, what do you do with your billing system? And um, he almost never answers those questions. He almost always gives me questions to think about and then tells me about what he's doing that's light years ahead of anything I ever thought of in terms of developing character. Like it's not just a, it's not lip service up there. Um, He actually has thought about and systematized, probably going back to Naval Academy days, right? Or military Mm. way of thinking, has systematized building character into children um, and adults. Um, And um, uh, uh, one of, you know, and giving back to the community. And one of the ways is with the Rocksteady boxing program. Uh, which is a great way to fill the daytime hours in a dojo right all of us business owners right we have that maybe hour in the morning maybe an hour at lunch two or three hours at night that's all you got um, unless you take on something like that so I'm just um, I would love Sean for you to, to ask a few questions about the business side of martial arts and the um, I know we're going to get in a little bit into the benefits of martial arts training outside of the fighting and the physical um, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Great. So why don't you just start us off some and I'll chip in as we hear some cool
0: ideas.
3: Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I think it, a good place to start might be, you know, when I started my dojo and why and how it was really, again, uh, luck again, because, you know, I was living here in, in uh, Livingston County and, you know, my wife, wonderful wife, but I, you know, I thought there's no way in that world that your wife's going to let you go and make do you know, do a karate school for a living. You know, it's crazy, right? What what wife would say, hey, why don't we start a karate school? You know? <laughs> so I never thought that I would ever have a karate school. I never did. I was my mind was set on it. So then one day my wife comes home. We live in a really small town. She goes, Hey Sam, I found a perfect building for your dojo
2: and I had to look at her and go what,
3: what what are you talking that's a
2: great that's a great wife man you <laughs> found a keeper you keep that woman forever
3: here is what's funny i wanted to go check her forehead cuz i thought maybe she was she was ill or not feeling good so when she said it i was kind of like what cuz i thought there's no way in the world she's going to let me do this cuz she comes from from a you know middle class family she was big into the security you got to have that 9 to 5 job and, stayed at the same company for 30 years. So I thought there's no way. Mm-hmm. So anyways, so I, before she could change, I was a joke about it. Before she could change her mind, I go, I leased the place, <laughs> okay? And uh, th- this is funny because uh, maybe about two years later, the dojo's going gangbusters. And she looks at me, she goes, and this shows you the difference between men and women. You know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. She looks at me, she goes, I thought you were just going to do this as a part-time, you know, kind of a hobby thing. And I looked at her, I go, Wow, were we different? Because fir- from the first day I said, no, this is going to be a, a big successful dojo. And the reason why I tell the story is because um, growing up through the martial arts, I'd seen way too many people struggle financially with dojos. And nothing's worse than the stress of you can't pay the bills or you're in, you're in a negative cash flow. I mean, I, that's I, that's got to be the worst thing in the world, not just for a dojo owner, for a business owner. Because every day you're hemorrhaging okay so i said okay if i'm going to do this i i don't want to i mean i love the martial arts and i want to do this for students but i don't want to be struggling i don't want that stress so i said just like we do for the martial arts i want to be a student of business i go if i'm going to open a dojo i need to be as there's two sides to a dojo there's the business side and there's the um you know the the martial arts side and i go some people do one and not the other and some mess up both so from the very start, I said, I, I want to learn how to do this right. I was really lucky because the one mentor I had, I don't know if you know a guy named Greg Silva. Greg Silva was, um, he was part of the, um, let's see what it was, he, he had the, um, what was the name of his organization? But he had, it was, you know, the, he, a lot of guys, um, he, he had a mastermind group, but he spawned a lot of guys out of there. But That's who I basically learned a lot of my principles from and the good thing about his organization, it wasn't just a fly by night or a bunch of, hey, we're gonna make a ton of money. The people that were with them were just genuinely good people. They were good martial artists. The thing that I loved the most is you they barely know you. They'd invite you. I remember one guy, Aris Mitchell, out in Maryland. They barely knew you. They'd invite you in. They'd tell you everything about their dojo. They'd show you all their systems. And, you know, this isn't a world where normally martial artists are very competitive and we all hide what we have. We don't want to share what we do. And But anyways, that's, that's, that's how I kind of learned the martial arts business. And from there, I said, okay, I'm going to make both sides work. I go, you can have great martial arts and you can still have a thriving business. Luckily, I had a, a little bit of a business and sales background and it helped me a little bit. So um, where were we going with the question? What was
0: well, the question? you know, since I just wanted to open it up to, to, to that side of, of what yeah. you, you're successful at, and I actually want to add, add, a, add a question there. So let me use my, uh, one of my students who's a black belt as a hypothetical. He's in Toronto. He wants to open a dojo or anybody else on this call. And by open a dojo, I mean the business side of it, not work another job. What are three, four, five things you'd say out of the gate these are the things you must be sure of. These are the things that will let you not teach Tuesday, Thursday night, but actually be that guy.
3: yeah, oh, great question. well, that's a big one. <laughs> Number one, I would say is don't reinvent the wheel the the one of, one of the big principles I learned in business is copy, 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 copy. you know you have a lot of people who could come up with a great idea, you know the next I don't know the next rocket ship or whatever. It's like don't do anything that's too out of the box do what's already proven to work so if you were starting a dojo find a dojo that's a, a successful dojo highly like this just like the one you want and then do everything you can to meet that person or meet people like that and you, just, you need to find mentors I think a lot of martial mm-hmm. artists they, they do it on their own they think okay here's it I have great martial arts they will come you know it's like I would build it they will come and they think that they can just open a place and just have great martial arts. But you, what you got to do is you got to have, you got to have um, a model and systems that you can that you can copy. And because you know, you guys run dojos. There's a lot more than just opening your door. There's accounting. There's advertising. There's you know customer service. There's you know the billing systems. There's so much involved. And and normally um, that's the part that none of us like, right? <laughs> we don't just want to get on the floor. But you got to be able to um, copy all those systems and then also to use professionals like you know a lot of people won't use a billing company they won't use a uh, what are some of the other the accounting system you know um you, you need to outsource everything that you're not good at so that's number one i would say just copy 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 mm-hmm. um, the other one is understand why you're doing it what's your why why are you doing it because everybody's why can be different and they're not good or bad. Like your why may, might be, you just want people to train with. <laughs> your why might be, you want to change your You want to contribute to the community. Your why might be, you want to be the you know the best dojo, in your in order. Your why might be, you want to just have produce the best fighters uh, in the world. But I think when you have that why, it gives you direction because you 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 can't be everything to everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, you know what's the why of your dojo? Why do we And I think for most of us who've been doing this a while, we we know that. But when you're first starting out, it's like, you know, why are you doing it?
0: That's really awesome and super helpful. And, and what you're talking about with that why, it's like you're automatic, without calling it your niche, you're creating your niche, yep. you're creating your unique, you yep. know, value add to the community.
3: Yep. And, it, and it, kind of just kind of on the same line, I, I think I told Sensei Swino this, you know, Sensei, I think the number one thing, once you get those two underway is what's the culture of your dojo going to be? So your culture, you're going to have a culture one way or the other. It's just whether it's intentional or whether it's a accidental. And if I had to say the one thing that's really helped us succeed here is from the very start, our culture was very, very clear. Uh, the way I like to talk about culture, it's two things. Culture is a group habit. And it's, the, it's whatever group you would like, like. Like, for instance, I came from a culture, the military had a very clear culture. You, you, you see anybody in the military, you know the cultures. Naval Academy has a specific culture. A dojo or the marsh has a culture. So that culture has to be very, very clear. And then everything we do revolves around that culture. Another word i like to use for culture is, and I love the saying, this is just how we do it here. This is just how we do it here. So when somebody, and the stronger your culture is, the more, what do you call it? The more unique or odd. Like we do a lot of things in the karate dojo that aren't done anywhere else. You know, you, you, if a person walks off the street, they're like, why do you take off your shoes? Why do you bow? Why do you speak Japanese? You know, why do you treat each other this way? Um, you know, every everything we do, you know, to putting on your gi, to tying your belt. So if you think about all of that as culture, and if you have a good handle on, like, if you have a good handle on, on intentionally creating that culture, you, you, you'll create a powerful, not just a dojo, but any business organization or even like... I always say this. The Marine Corps has a specific culture. That's what makes the Marine Corps so great. You know, the, the SEALs have a specific culture. And I, th- I think that's one of the most powerful things we can do in, in, our, in our dojos, because the martial arts is really, it's all about that strong culture, whether it's you know, in the dojo or you know, with the style that you have.
0: Love that. Thanks for that. Um, so we're going to jump to our 10 questions, and then there's some ideas I want to come back to, but I got to sure. make sure we have time for our 10 questions. Um, one day, this sheet, I want this in like the Smithsonian of martial arts. Um, this <laughs> is our goal sure. with this show is for this sheet to be that important one day. Um, only, so, you could
2: read, only you could read that sheet. Sean. I
0: guarantee you, I can read this. It's so clear to me. Um, so, Sensei, we ask you to answer as impulsively as you can, but then expand on your answers as you wish. Um, what is the most effective move in your martial arts arsenal? Oop.
3: That's interesting because, you know, the biggest thing is that I was, we were never big into tournaments. We, you know, Higon Sensei wasn't big into tournaments. I would say I, I love Uraken, the back fist, because I find that, um, you know, when you're trying to generate power because your hand is so relaxed and the back of the hand is so powerful, I, I just love the Uraken, the back fist. Mm-hmm.
4: Um,
0: who is the most influential martial artist in your life? Well, oh, that's, that's an easy one. <laughs> uh,
3: Higon Sensei. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Without a doubt. I mean, by far, um, uh you know because I, I i've done some other martial arts but it was but I, my base was always um goes and he goes since he's always been my always been my sister but one of the highlights was getting
0: uh my show done there in Okinawa. that was a that was a dream come true who do you believe is the most influential martial artist of all time and why
3: mm. Mm. I, you know, I'll, I'll throw something a little bit different. You know, it was like what I was talking about before. I, I think the most influential martial artists, especially to, um, to American karate or martial arts, was, was really the the the, 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 um, the military, the servicemen. That, that yeah, I always think, of, maybe because I know them so well, I go, if there hadn't been a military, an overseas presence of the U.S. military, the um the texture of the, the characteristics of American martial arts would be so different. Because if you really look at it, um, a lot of the martial arts in the United States really was patterned after these guys who are military. They were military guys. The way they ran their dojo was just like a military. And really, when you go to a lot of dojos, especially the previous generation, now it's kind of getting but generation before us in the United States was heavily, heavily, heavily military. Hope it goes it.
1: back that way.
3: What's that? Is it? Hope it goes back that way. Yeah. How about in Canada? I I, I was always curious about that. Did, did Canada, and there are a lot of Americans that were that, you, know, you you'd have this young, you'd have this young 18, 21 year old and they're stationed in Okinawa or Japan or, or Korea, and they you know, runny nose, they'd go into a dojo and they'd get the crap beat out of them and they'll love it and they bring it back. Did they did, did that happen in Canada?
2: Well, since the legacy's instructor is a Marine who is stationed on Okinawa for 18 years. So Sensei, so, did you wanna say something about that? Sorry. The
4: United States has been a great source for us. And I, I do believe it's from the military the Marines, et cetera, the army, the air force, and the Navy. Yeah, yeah. like the United States has been um, a great place for us to learn. I've did a lot of training in the United States. As far as being on the same par as, The influence on the Canadian army uh, I don't believe was quite the same.
3: Yeah. yeah. Even
4: though I'm reluctant in saying that uh, I'm not quite sure I have never gotten it from from Canada. I've always went to the United States.
3: Yeah you you know an interesting thing and I just saw this recently was um, the, the nature of the military was the army army was typically stationed in Korea. And in Japan and Okinawa is primarily Air Force and Marine Corps. So as a result, almost all the Marine, all all the army people that came back were either Hapkido or Taekwondo. Chuck Norris. And then almost all the Marines, all the Marines and all the uh, Air Force were typically
2: uh, karate. That's that's an amazing observation. Yeah, I, I actually have thought about that, but not... You're a military person. So it's interesting to hear you say that, right? Because there's not, there's not many army stationed in Okinawa or, or Japan, but they're all in Korea. Right. Who's the most famous karate person in the United States who is an army person is Chuck Norris. What's his base? Korean martial arts, right? Robert Trieste, George Alexander, Anthony Sandoval. Like these people are all Marines. Karate, not, Okinawan karate.
0: That's so badass.
2: Um, Sorry, Sean, sensei- we sidetracked your ten. I, questions.
0: This was great. It's actually why I wanted to get into them before the end. Um, sensei, what excites you most about the next five years of your training? Gosh,
2: well, you it's can- okay if you want to say you want to train with us. That's okay. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> That's I look forward to that
3: next five years. You know, I, I think um, here's, here's the honest truth. Um, I I. I don't know. I, I've been doing this for a long time now, but I never considered myself a great teacher. And I'd say it's more in the recently that I've become better at it because I've worked, I have to work so hard at it. I, you know, honestly, I don't think I'm a natural teacher. I think I really have to work at it. Maybe that's good. So I would say that, especially in the last couple of years, but I'm looking to the next five years because I think I've just, touch the beginning of when I could. And what's the best way to put it? I'm like, you know, for the first 10 or 20, 10, 15 years, I'm just like struggling through, just mumbling through, just doing the best I can. And I think I'm finally getting to a point now. Okay. I think I know what I, I think I'm starting to know what I'm doing. (laughs) So that's what I'm really looking forward to. I think in the next five years is becoming a better teacher. And, and, and there's a lot to that.
0: Well, uh, Sensei, you you might not know this uh, if you haven't watched the right episodes, but uh Hunchy legacy once determined that 30 years is the point at which you're considered a serious martial artist so it makes sense that 30 years in you're starting to go i think i'm getting this
3: okay well it's good to know i've got that, that that
0: validation you've gotten serious <laughs> this year um almost had, all
2: of us are almost all of us on this call are there almost all almost almost Wah, wah,
0: wah. <laughs> wah, 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 wah. <laughs> 2023 you elude me um
3: got to put in the time
0: got to put in the time if heaven exists what would you like to hear God say when you get there yeah oh uh, yeah
3: you know I, I think the biggest for me is you made a difference mm. you made a difference and I and and you know what I you, I think we're, we're very lucky because uh you know you know we have to think in terms of we're, we've got these dojos and we have we have an open door, an opportunity to, to just change people's lives. Like you look at a lot of people in other occupations. How many occupations have that? Not a whole lot, you know, teachers maybe. But here's what I always say too. You know, a teacher might be a teacher of a child for maybe one or two years. A coach might be a coach for maybe, you know, two, three seasons. But as karate instructors, it's, it's we're in a unique position where we may teach somebody for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And we may teach kids as young as three all the way till they become, you know, adults. What you know? What other? What other profession does that?
0: A great question. Do you have a favorite film and television martial artist?
3: Mm, I'm not big in it. Yeah, Bruce Lee. But I'm. Not, I don't know. I just. I. You know, it's it's funny because I I wasn't. You see these kids all the time who you know were you know were fanatics about watching every. You know, every martial art, I was in that, I was that type. So I, I was, I say Bruce Lee, but I wasn't really big into watching a lot of,
0: you know, martial arts films. Um, is there a martial artist living or dead in all of history that you would like to train with the most?
3: Yeah, you know, actually, I'd love to just pick his brain, too, is Chojin Miyagi. And, there, and he's the founder of Goshu. And I would say, here's what, here's what I think about him is it's weird because everybody and especially in the goju world is tradition 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 don't change anything don't change anything don't change anything yet he was the one who was the biggest innovator but people don't realize it i mean he i mean he created new katas you know can you imagine you know you're in the traditional world and some guy goes i'm going to create some new katas (laughs) but I, i would have loved to talk to him because he did so many things like you know bringing it into the high schools and also too you think about the time when he um when he taught, he, would, he taught just before and during and just after World War II, and you know, talk about trying to teach. Um, you know, if you, I was, I was marvelled at looking at the films of the Battle of Okinawa. I mean, what the Japanese and the Americans did to Okinawa was just amazing, and that he lived and and you know, he lived and he really tried to help the Okinawan people get through that time, and karate was the way he did it. Hmm.
0: Thanks for that. Um, if everyone in the world could have the greatest benefit you've gotten from martial arts, whether they do martial arts or not, what gift would they be getting? Mm.
3: Yeah, you know, um, first of all, I, I think one of the gifts is, and I think one of the powers of the martial arts is the, the people you're around. I think, you know, something about people who are, who are really into the martial arts, there's a bond there and there's a, there's a relationship there that's, very different than almost any other relationship mm-hmm. you have. And again, I say it's very close to the military. Um, it's very special. As a matter of fact, when I uh when I left uh, Dojo, you know, I kind of looked for a place to train and what kept coming and what kept me coming back to all the gosh was in training was I just didn't couldn't leave the people. I just mm-hmm. kept wanting to come back, wanting to come back. And it was almost like, and every time, even though we hadn't seen each other for maybe a year or two, it was like coming back to family and like you had just left them yesterday. The other thing I think the martial arts does, which I think we can do, is it, I like to call it the edge. You know, I'm sure you guys have all had this, where you have, an, you have an emotional experience where you get pushed to the very edge physically, mentally, emotionally, absolutely tapped. And, you know, and I, I've had it happen in some other parts of my life, but I, I find that we can give people an experience that takes them to the edge of their being. It's mm. such a rush, you know what I mean? You, you know, have you ever trained so friggin' hard or been in a gradient that was so friggin' hard? And you're like, I can't move another muscle, but then you keep going. Mm. Or you're about ready to throw up. You know, I call those peak experiences. And I think what happens is when you have those peak experiences, they not only change you forever, but you remember those experiences. And what's I think neat about karate, and I both I've experienced it, but also I'm able to put them on is to create those peak experiences, peak emotional experiences for people. That's what keeps us alive, that's what juices us.
2: Yeah, it does. the Sweeney does one of those, it's called uh, The Crucible. And the Legacy does one, it's called The Black Bolt Grading. Yeah.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, but that that drives people.
0: Um, The last two questions come as a pair. What is your greatest achievement and greatest regret?
3: Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I have to say my two kids, I got two great kids. I'm really lucky, my wife is phenomenal. Uh, but I think it's, it's great to see my, my, my son is 29 and my daughter's 32 and they've just grown to be amazing people. You know, so I, I think that's what I'm most proud of. My biggest regret, I wish I'd started karate earlier.
2: Because
3: <laughs> mm-hmm. I started when I was 31 and since was there between 1985 and 1995. Now, here's the thing, I, I don't think I would have ever wanted, it's interesting because people ask me because I always think, you know, I, I think it's because I'm Asian. They think I've been doing martial arts my entire life and my dad was a Kung Fu master, right? Because you're Asian. Kind of like if you're six foot 10 you're a basketball player. <laughs> but um, I don't think I would have wanted to take uh, martial arts when I was a child. I think it would have been different. I'm glad I did it as an adult. Um, the only thing is I wish I'd taken it about Five six years earlier, when Higo and Sensei first
0: got to the United States, mm. I hear that. I think we'd all have liked to. Well, maybe Sensei Sueno. I don't know. Not <laughs> which. Sensei Do you wish you started earlier? Did you? You pretty much got right about it. Like, uh, do you care about the extra six months you might have got
1: out of it? Well, I started as eight, eight years old, right? Um, yeah. Boy. Yeah. I wish I worked. A- I wish I had worked harder at it. It's not a regret, right? Yeah. But yeah, I just wish yeah. I had taken it more seriously, more hours of the day. Maybe I wish I had Higahona sensei's constitution. Although I have to say, when I was in Japan, I often trained nine hours a day. So yeah, it's, it's, you don't have to be superhuman. You just have to be passionate. That's crazy. A, it's a crazy, cool crazy. question,
2: right? Like for yeah. me personally, I don't think I would have got anything from starting earlier, like I started when I was 18, but before I was 18, I did lots of sports. I ran track, I did boxing, I played football, I lifted weights, I did all kinds of stuff. I think coming when I did was the right time for me to come personally, like not earlier.
0: Sensei, I agree with you. And you know, I just wish I spent more of my twenties, my late twenties, especially more dedicated, Uh, but I don't, 18 was a great starting age and my ballet background prepared me nicely for moving in karate.
2: Yeah. It's not when you started, it's what you did after you started. That's a
0: great way. (laughs) Hanchi Legacy, do you wish you started earlier? Well,
4: well, it was good for me. The uh, things I did before, I had a bit of a rough life and I think that uh, uh, I was more ready to face the uh, toughness of martial arts than Most persons at my age at that time, just because of that. You know what I mean? I had a a rough teenage and early 20s. And then I needed karate. And because I needed it, once I found it, I I held on to it. Like it was my life depended on it. And believe me, it did. Yeah,
0: I love that. Yeah, other than my guitar, there's nothing I've maintained from my pre- teen like karate and whatever years everything else was like whatever you know I took it for granted uh sensei lariosa I want to ask you a question um and we don't have a ton of time I'm, I'm sorry to say because there's so many ideas I want to crack open so with you but um you know you've, you've had that time in Okinawa uh and how do you look at Okinawan on the ground arts compared to the USA arts You know you you were taught by an Okinawan instructor in America but then presumably you went and worked with other people who are American only so how do you perceive that is there a difference what's the difference does it matter
3: um you know first of all I think all martial arts are are great I think a lot of times we get caught up into this you know which art is better which you know and and I think that that we as martial artists have to get away from that because it's not good or bad, everybody has good or not so good. Probably the biggest thing that I really started to realize as I started doing more Okinawan karate is the difference between Okinawan and Japanese karate. Mm. The huge, and, and, and because initially I thought, hey, Japanese, Okinawan, they're kind of the same, right? They're, they're, but the more and more I, I, I go deeper into, and also too, I, uh, I, I, now I, we're, I'm a showdown in, in uh, Mateyoshi Kobudo too. So the weapons, because if you go to Okinawan Dojo, there's no weapons dojos and like karate dojos. They're they're the same. They're both in name. But but what I what I find more and more is, is the interesting, I find it intriguing the difference of, of Okinawan and Japanese karate and the evolution, because you know it came from Okinawa first and it went to Japan. And the interesting thing is the Japanese rightfully so put their spin and their culture on their karate. And when you really look at it, the karate of Japan and the karate of Okinawa are very different. It's almost as different as Okinawan karate and American karate, or or American or Okinawan karate and European karate. Like if you if you look at karate in South America versus in Europe or the Eastern Bloc. I don't know if you guys have you ever trained with those guys from the Eastern Bloc. They're friggin' nuts. But um, but I'm really intrigued by the difference between Okinawa and the Japanese karate. Yeah, yeah, that's right. they they they're brutal. <laughs>
0: Um, could could you could you name a few differences?
3: Well, like for instance, the katas are completely different.
0: Yeah.
3: Um, the katas are different. The um, the range of fighting, and I and I, I can understand why because you know, like for instance, Shotokan. Again, I'm limited in what I know in, in the other mind, but Shotokan is more linear, longer distance. You're moving in. Um, Gozaru is trapping distance. It's like you, it's it's you're right there touching somebody, and all the techniques are short, short techniques. Yeah. What's interesting is although the Okina, although the Goju practitioners are really really heavy hitters, you know what they're really really good at, and people don't realize this until that you really get moving, they're phenomenal movers because in order to get close in <laughs> successfully, you got you got to get there in the first place, and you got to be great movers. And so, when I go to Okinawa and I see some of these old masters, they they may get a little bit, um, you know. Uh, they, they may lose strength, whatever, but they're so fast, so good at moving. And I've seen demos where you had this, you know, this 70 or 80 year old guy with a, you know, a 30 year old black belt. And he's wiping the floor with the guy because he's so fast at moving. And you would never think that because you think Okinawa's is big stocky. They just want to punch the crap out of each other, but they're really good movers.
0: Hmm. I'm not sure if it's what you're describing, but you know, when the boxers are in tight, those little drop steps, the the, the, the footwork is... Small but so
1: significant, yeah.
3: Well, it's like in uh, sueno sensei, I mean, like in judo, the footwork in judo,
1: it's everything, it's everything, yeah. You have to be able to move well. Well, you're, you're if, if there's such a possibility, you're even closer in judo than you are in goju, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> well, you detached. think it's not just root strength and throwing somebody, hopefully, not at all, yeah.
0: <laughs> um, the last thing I've written down before we're going to go around the horn, sensei. Uh, and by around the horn, I just mean we're going to start with Hanchi Legacy and, you know, just say a little something about our time with you. But I wrote down, based on uh, Sensei Dauphin's introduction, rank, what the fuck, question mark, exclamation mark. <laughs> so what's uh, what's the deal with you and rank? You, you don't mention your rank, is that right? Or it's not important to you? Or is that just something no. that...
3: Yeah, you know, it's... Um, you know what I... I, I you, you, you remember how I told you I was fighting with my identity of, you know, Asian. And one of the things that I found out, and I, I do this with, with people, is 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 if you're that Asian looking to get back to your hair, the martial arts will do that. Because everything we do in the dojo, everything the Okinawans do is just like the Filipinos do. So um, anyways, what it, the thing about the rank is this, is um, he can always had this culture of, you know, it's not about you, it's not about your rank. So it's not that I don't want to put it out there, but it's not like it's not like it's not like I write it on my check. It's not like I, you know, I put it on my bill. As a matter of fact, if you look at my website, there's nothing about me, because uh, I don't know. It it's it doesn't need to be about me because um, we do what we do really well here, and. And it's you know and it, and it, I, i'm a, i'm a i'm a yandan in Gojuru, i'm a um actually it's funny i'm a I'm a second degree in taekwondo I don't tell most people about that just joking and then, uh, <laughs> and, and, and then, I, and then I and then i i am i just got my shodan in mateyoshikooto, but to me it's like it's always it's always the way I was raised you know the best way to say it is that's how I was raised. Mm my my father my my karate father was he Saying and he didn't care a crap what your what your what your band rank was you know you just get into the ring and you start pummeling each other and and you train hard and so it's so to me it's never been about rank and i find that i don't even like to talk about it much because it to me it's 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 who you are as a person not what you wear as a as a rank i love that
0: there's that great Yahanchi yeah, legacy. see
4: well, uh, being a military person, imagine the military without rank.
3: Yeah, but you, but here's what, here's what's interesting. That I, here, I'll, that's great, are Like, I'll throw this at you. You know what? What's interesting about true leaders? They don't need a rank. I mean, in fact, if you need a you, you know, in other words, in other words, if you if you're a great leader, it doesn't matter whether you've had you know a bird colonel on your shoulder or whether you've got stars or whatever. It's like when you, you know a leader when you see one
4: well that is true you still need um, order yeah it's it's an it's a tool for keeping everything working properly yeah so uh whilst it may not be important to you like um i'll never get graded again but i really don't care about that but you know there may be an eighth or a ninth that who is looking for someone to follow, and hopefully it um, it sort of says a little bit about um, your practice of martial arts, and you know somebody may need that. Well, again, personally, yes. If I threw my belt in the garbage, I would still be the same person. But because it's martial arts, the military way, we need some sort of structure. Sure. And, you know, it's just a thought, my thought, that's all.
3: I, I heard the saying, you know, it's like a pack of wolves. Um, even though a pack of wolves, they know who's the alpha dog.
4: Mm-hmm. But we're humans. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, yeah, Hunchy, that reminds me when it was my sixth sober birthday, I said to my sponsor, I don't really want to take a cake this year, you know, feeling a little humble this year. And he goes, it's not for you for the guy with four years who wants to see somebody who's got six, who knows that it's available for them.
2: Yeah, I like that, Sean, when you say that. Yeah. It reminds me of when he says, says, you fight your way to third den and then the others are something else. I often say, everything after a third den isn't for me, it's for you. It's
1: cool. Wow, this is a good chat. Um, we gotta
0: go though. So Hanchi Legacy, why don't you start us off around the horn and then we'll end on you, uh, Lariosa, uh and then we'll do a little bit of housekeeping and say goodbye.
4: Sure. I've learned a lot. Okay, I've learned a lot of things from you about uh how we should look at our marsh- business-wise, etc. Um you've gave me some very to me personally, some very important information about um, Karate Do and Karate Jutsu, uh, that personally to me that was very pleasing and uh, find that you're a very ground, very well uh, versed and grounded human being as far as being a martial artist that uh, maybe some of those I could pick up some of those attributes and use them myself. It was nice to meet you and hopefully at some time
1: we can meet face to face. Thank you. I hope so too.
0: Sensei Suino. thanks, Hanchi.
1: I I always enjoy the time I spend with Sensei Lariosa. We've spent time in in uh, mastermind groups. We've had meals together. Um, I've been at his dojo. He's visited mine. It's always it's always really enjoyable. I took a ton of notes, um, but I'm just going to share one thing that Sensei Lariosa said to me some years ago. I don't remember how early in our, in our acquaintance he said this. Um, he said, one of the most powerful things a parent can say to their kids is, I really loved watching you do karate today. And it turns out that's true. And not only does it turn out that that's true, but you can say the same thing to adults and it's meaningful to them. And you can say the same thing to employees and it doesn't have to be about karate. Being present for somebody is one of the most powerful gifts you can give them. And I never even thought about it that way until Sensei Larios told me. So that's a gift you gave me many years ago and I've never forgotten. Thank you for that.
0: Thanks Sensei. Thank you.
1: Sensei Dopa.
2: So listen, uh, Sensei Larios, I'm gonna tell you something. Oftentimes when we have these these chats with people there's chatter in the background that people don't know about and I will tell you tonight there's been almost zero chatter there's so what I mean by the chatter is that we're texting each other we're messaging on Facebook um tonight I only had a lot of thoughts like what you were providing led me to think about what you said and then it led me to other thoughts and this has been a great conversation so things that i took away that i've learned about you and that i've learned myself is you know you're a military kid who went east west east west east west uh filipino background i didn't know that um really interesting i I never really thought about uh when you're a first generation American or in any nation and your parents chose to come there, they try and make you white. Or I, I imagine that's similar in other places. If people bring their kids to other places in the world, they want to try and assimilate to that place. That's a interesting thought. I'm going to, that's going to help me in my work and in my life a lot. Like just thinking about that one thought. Um, I can't imagine being in the Philippines during the end of the Vietnam War. That's something. Um, Yeah. It's interesting when you just we talked a lot tonight about the traditions of the military and the traditions of martial arts and how they kind of mesh. And uh, I always felt that. But you're one of the very first people who really articulated it really well tonight. And uh, I was really happy to hear that, Um, you know. I said karate privilege. She didn't know who Hagashiona sensei was. And it's like, I I say that all my daughter is the one who says that to me about karate privilege. She's like, you know, I just grew up thinking that everybody had access to people like Sensei Legacy and Sensei Suino, not realizing that I was one of the very few lucky ones who could have that. And if anybody takes something away from this podcast, I hope that's one of the things they take away. Um, going to sensei that he trained six to eight hours a day. That's awesome. That reminds me of some people I know. Um, his English was uh, really bad. That reminds me of when, uh, sensei Benson was training with Hiditaka Nishiyama, we went there once. I couldn't understand one word that came out of his mouth when we were there. Um, but still kind of interesting that you just got to get in there and do it. Uh, our talks about the feeling of karate. I also want to say that, uh, your wife, like you're blessed to have a person like that who would support you. I have finally found that in my life. I know a has that in his life. Um, you really can't do what we do if you don't have a partner who's like all in with you. Right. Or you're always going to be torn between your passions of your wife and this thing that's drawing you all the time. So good for you. And congratulations to your wife for for supporting you in the way that she does. Um, student of business, copy, copy, copy. Uh, The one thing that you said as well, like outsource what you're not good at. I, I think that's a really powerful statement for a lot of martial arts teachers. They stand at the front. They feel like they're like the one, they don't wanna show any weakness. I think that's a good lesson for martial arts teachers to take away is outsource what you're not good at. There's some things you're not good at and just don't try and be good at it. Just be good at what you're good at and let other people do that other stuff. Um, what is your why? Uh, I really like when you said the culture of your dojo, it can be intentional or accidental. Right. I, uh, I like to think it started here accidentally, but then become became intentional, right? Like as we figured it out. Um, back fist, most people say reverse punch, but... I really like hearing the bagfist. That's definitely in my top five, at least. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Why are you laughing, Sean?
0: Because <laughs> this part of my body is very aware that it's in your top five. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah.
2: Um, I like that you think that the military servicemen were the most influential. I've never thought about that before, but I cannot argue that in any way. I think you're 100% right about that. Um, It's cool that you think in the next five years, you're looking forward to being a better teacher uh, and that God, if you show up there would say you made a good difference. Um, Those similarities, I wrote this down, same mud, same blood, right? Karate people kind of have that same thing, right? Like, how can you know what it's like to get punched in the face and have a bloody nose if you've never been punched in the face and had a bloody nose? You can't, right? Give people the experience that takes them to the edge of their limits. Like, that's such a good statement. Um, and one thing I want to say to you, Sensei, before we turn it over to you, it, or Sean, and then you, is you know, you were 31 when you started karate, other people were different ages. I want to share with you that. Um, I got my black belt with a person named Jim Christian, and he was in his 40s when he started karate, and he's still training, and he's on this call right now. And he's, he's a great martial artist. Jim Christian is an amazing martial artist. I look up to him in so many ways. And another person I wanna mention is, when I joined when I was 18, I joined at the University of Western Ontario and karate was, since was a karate instructor there, and Kenny Ibu Suzaki joined, and he was a biology professor and he was 61 years old and he trained until the day he died. And he was a fourth-degree black belt when he died. And there's, not, there's no week in my life that goes by that I don't think about him and be grateful for him. So it's not really about the age. It's about what you do once you start, not when you start. It's once you start, what do you do from that point forward, not when did you start. And, yeah, so thank you so much for tonight. I, I can't wait to see you again. I know I will. That's the exciting thing is I know I'll see you again. (laughs)
0: Um, And I just want to say really quickly before I throw it to you, um, you know, I I just love the way you talked about the culture. This is the way we do it here. And, and and that creates very unique spaces, you know, and uh, it's a beautiful thing to either choose it or just to know that, no, this is how we do it here. And that becomes the culture, chicken or egg. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Um, And then, you know, this is a little bit more what Sensei talked about in the intro, but we got into it a bit just when you talked about the idea that you could have a karate teacher for 40, 50 years, it was just such a great, you know, minor on this call. And so the gratitude I feel for that and also the responsibility I feel as an instructor who could be that for someone uh, that perspective, you put it in is massive. Like I still think about my ballet teacher and I was with her for nine years, but I'm with my teachers. I've been with for, Almost thirty years right now on this call. Literally, it's a beautiful thing. So thanks for that, and thanks for putting that in perspective. What do you want to go out on before I do one last bit of housekeeping?
3: Sure. Um, you know, I I thoroughly enjoyed this. I didn't know what to expect, but you know, I, what's interesting was the time went by so fast. <laughs> but you know what, what I will do, and, and Sueno Sensei knows this. I love quotes because it says the saying is that in a quote you can is a it's a condensation of you know tons and tons of wisdom. But the one quote that I always go back to and guides me so much now, especially the more I do this, is this. I don't know if you ever heard this before, but we don't teach karate, we teach people. You ever heard that one? We, don't, we, you know, we all get into over teaching judo or teaching karate. No, we don't teach karate, we teach people.
0: Thanks, Sensei. Um, So I just want to say thanks to Robert Schlumsky, thanks to Mike Russell, thanks to Victoria Feth, Justin Shea, Alden Adair, and tonight's man behind the scenes, Andre Sedeshev. Those people are why you know when the shows are, or why the computers are up and running. Yeah, they literally work the servers in Silicon Valley. They're that good. Uh, We don't have a show without them. And uh, I'm going to throw it to Dauphin to tell us about our guests for the next few weeks and to say goodnight for us.
2: Uh, Okay, so... I only have two. We're working on a couple right now, but uh, Lauren Bernard is coming up, a uh, weight crane kung fu practitioner from Quebec. Uh, since Legacy and I had dinner with him uh, on Saturday, really good guy. Also, super passionate about motorcycles. So, you know, like,
4: Ooh,
2: it's gonna, yeah, it's going <laughs> to be a good conversation when they like motorcycles and martial arts. We haven't done a host chat for a while. So we're going to be doing a host chat soon. That'll be on the 21st and then yeah, we're just working behind the scenes to get a couple of other people and I'll be awesome. excited to announce those ones when, when they can happen. And then awesome. don't forget about our events, please. Like uh, I'm looking right now. I see Sensei Copeland's on this call. I see Dan Holland. I see Doug Knispel uh these are people who are going to be here teaching and training with us on the 14th and 15th of may um yeah if any questions about it just reach out or go on our website because all the information is there you can get hotel information all that stuff is there so love
0: that and just for everyone watching you know we're, we're all working so hard and sensitive offense, especially on getting these guests in order and and we do have those events coming up the 14th and 15th and the world martial arts live on the 18th of june and and so, you know, uh, maybe we get five extra guests or maybe you come to those events and you actually get to work with the guests, uh, which is, you know, I recommend both, but definitely make sure those seminars are at the top of your list. If you're like, huh, when's the next PKCC? It might be in person. Uh, yeah.
2: it's in, in a May. good point, Sean, right? Like we do these yeah. PKCC chats and people are like, oh, they talk a good game. Well, yep. get your ass out on the floor get and your, your ass. Can- you're gonna see. Sensei Copeland's gonna put his right hand on your face. Sensei Sueno's gonna hit you with the earth. And Sensei is gonna stick his finger deep into some part of your body that you didn't want.
0: <laughs> you didn't even know it was part of yeah, your I'm body. That weekend.
4: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, that's a great note to go out on. Everybody, thanks so much for being <laughs> with us tonight, and uh, we really look forward to that. Thank you again, Sensei Lariosa, for thanks your everybody. time and your incredible Thanks, to
2: you. Thank you.
0: Great see night.
4: You.